Sarah Mousekopf, finally. This is an episode of Finally, the podcast from Michael Furtick. I'm very delighted today to welcome Sarah Mousekopf, the CEO and founder of Winnie, a marketplace for childcare. Sarah is also a former Postmates person, a former YouTube and Google person, a former Twitter person, which is perhaps one of the reasons her handle on X, formerly Twitter, is at SM, a precious two-character handle. She is a frequent tweeter or Twitter or Xer. She's an MIT graduate, graduating with a 5.0 out of 5.0 GPA. And that is when grades still meant something. I believe she is a Philadelphia or nearby native. Given her passion for the Philadelphia Eagles NFL team and other Philadelphia sports teams, is that right or do I have that wrong? That is absolutely right. And we can we can talk a lot about the Eagles today, right? They had a big win yesterday. Well, I, we're going to talk about the Eagles because I don't <laughs> think you can stop talking about the Eagles. Um, it's not necessarily the topic that I wanted to, but we're going to get there. We're going to get there. It's on the list. And um, when we set up this interview, I said, of course, to Sarah, we can talk about your company, Winnie, as much as you'd like. But I also set the table that I wanted to talk about your life, which we often do here on the Finally Podcast in what you might call our ongoing mission to discover what makes special people special. Sarah has been open for a very long time about how much she has been handling in her life. Not only a company, not only as a founder, not only as a CEO, which company, by the way, is doing very well. I am a an investor in that company, but also as a mom, also as a wife, she has three daughters, correct? Two daughters and a son. Oh my God. I'm sorry. I, I well, won't tell you, know him what? you misgendered him. Hey, you never oh, know. No. I oh, no, I've misgendered him. <laughs> okay. Well, you have three kids, two daughters and a son. Thank you. And I think two of them were born while you were founding and running Winnie as the CEO. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah. The, the first one was the inspiration. And then the second two were born as I was building the company. Okay. And then all of that, we're sort of coming to the end of your bio, but we're not there yet. All of that would already be a lot for anyone. Um, but Sarah has also been very open about a terrible illness that befell her husband some years ago, cancer, and about battling through this horror with him while raising kids, while running the company, while also living her life as she does very openly with her interests and out-of-work hobbies and interests. And there's a kind of superhuman quality to Sarah that I have observed over the years. I've known her for some years now. So first of all, before we get to the meat of the discussion, is there anything about your bio? I always give everyone a chance to edit their bio or amplify or correct. Is there anything about your bio that you'd like to edit, amplify, correct, delete, whatever? Uh, no, and you're hired to write my biography or ghost write my autobiography and then do the uh, audiobook because you have the perfect voice for podcasting and Audio Perfect book. voice for podcasting. This is awesome. <laughs> this is awesome. Awesome. Finally, with Michael Furtick and Sarah Moskov. Okay. So good. Sarah Moskov. Um, Sarah Moskov, first of all, 
Can you please tell us some more, share with us some of the details and facts of your husband's illness and the, the timeline? Because it's been a lot of what you've shared publicly and it is very unusual. You're a young person. You and I are about one month of age apart, I believe. Uh, you're a young person. You've been dealing with this with young kids and young family for too long, at too young an age. So is your husband, whom I don't know, whom I've not met, um, but I imagine he's quite special. Can you tell us more about what has happened? Yeah. So this was way back uh, now, I guess seven years ago when I uh, was starting Winnie, or almost eight years ago now. Um, I started Winnie, which is a childcare marketplace um, back in gosh, now I'm going to get the year wrong, 2016 um, with uh, my co-founder, Ann Halsell. Uh, we started it because we both had young kids and, and we struggled with finding childcare. Um, and shortly after starting the company, uh, my husband, Eric, who uh, was working for Google at the time and was kind of the, you know, when you start a company, you take a big pay cut. Uh, and he was the breadwinner and, and I felt comfortable starting the business, even though I had a brand new baby, uh, because I had, you know, that, that security. Um, shortly after starting Winnie, a few months after he started feeling really sick, um, it, you know, they, there's this joke about like a man cold. Um, and that's what we thought it was for a long time, <laughs> but mm. he didn't get better. Um, he just kept mm. getting worse. Uh, and eventually after trying all these different antibiotics, um, the, the ear, nose, and throat doctor said, let's just remove your tonsils. Like we can't figure out why they're, you know, infected, but like, let's get them out because they're, <sighs> they're not getting better. They're just very inflamed. So they removed his tonsils and anytime you remove an organ, uh, they send it to the lab to check for cancer. But that was just kind of like a routine check. Um, they thought he had just some kind of infection in his tonsils. Uh, but no, it was cancer. Um, mm. It was uh, lymphoma, um, which, uh, you know, had been now festering for, uh, I guess, six months from when he kind of started feeling the initial symptoms. Mm. Uh, and so he needed pretty aggressive treatment. Um, and he was 37 at the time, which oh is pretty goodness. rare for the kind of lymphoma he had like he was young for that kind of lymphoma. Um, Jesus Christmas. But the good thing is, so it has like a fairly high mortality rate if you look up the kind of cancer he had, but that's because it's usually uh, something that that older white men get. Um, that's kind of the, the profile. So the fact that he got it at 37 was actually really a blessing in disguise because they could treat it really aggressively. Um, a lot of you know, older people that get that kind of cancer can't handle that kind of aggressive treatment. Um, mm. But he could at 37. And, uh, you know, now there's no signs of cancer. And, you know, it's been seven years. So uh, that Terrific. is wonderful oh, wow. getting to the chase. But wow, it was a really God. rough. Baruch Hashem. Yes, uh, it was a really rough, like six months to a year. You know, I had just started this company. I had just hired my first employees, just raised uh, kind of that initial funding um, had a brand new baby to take care of, which is, you know, a whole other new dimension of life and a really sick husband who, you know, ended up, uh, leaving his job at Google, um, and becoming a stay at home dad for a while, uh, till he 
joined me to work for Winnie, which is now amazing. Um, so it all kind of comes full, full circle. But it, you know, it was a really rough beginning, and I think that really set the stage for uh, a lot of the other challenges I faced along the way have kind of paled in comparison to going through, you know, having a loved one go through cancer treatment. Taking us back to that time about seven years ago, how long was the acute, the period of acute fear, acute horror, acute difficulty, um, anxiety, and acute treatment as well? Uh, how, you, how long did that roughly last? Because now it seems like you're in a great place and Eric is in a great place. How, how long did that acute phase last? So I think there's like two really hard points of cancer for the person not experiencing the chemo. Uh, so, you know, the chemo obviously is, is incredibly rough, um, especially the kind he got. But for like the caregivers and the loved ones, I think the beginning phase where you're getting the diagnosis and you're kind of coming to terms with what the treatment will even be, whether, you know, your loved one will live. There was a point in time, it was about a month where I was like transporting his tonsil sample to different labs and they were disagreeing oh my goodness. about mm. uh, what kind of cancer he even had and whether it was like curable or not. Um, right, right. And we ended up going with the lab that did think it was curable. <laughs> I'm really glad we did UCSF. Uh, but there was, you know, a disagreement there and it was just really stressful to even get that diagnosis. Once you have a treatment plan, obviously it can be really rough for the patient, but for the caregivers, you kind of understand the routine and and what to expect. And I had a lot of support. My mom uh, actually took a leave of absence from her job and came out and lived with us for a period of time to help. So that was, you know, amazing. I wouldn't have made it through without her. (laughs) Um, But, and then I think uh, there's like the the period after you're finished your initial treatment where you're waiting to figure out if it worked or not like that, I think is, is another really uh, stressful time because you don't know, you know, are you done or are you like going to have to do this all again or do something different? Um, You know, I was fortunate with Eric that as he was going through the treatment, they could kind of see that things were working. Um, So we had a lot of positive indications, but you don't really know that it, it worked or not. I mean, you still really don't know. Um, It's unclear, you know, if it could come back or if he could get something else as a result of all the, the chemo that he had. And that took place over that, that unfolded, that set of events unfolded over what, a year, 18 months. I'm just trying to get a sense of how long. He really only needed treatment for about four months of really intense. Wow actually pretty short compared to like other forms of cancer. It was actually oh, wow. a kind of chemo that he carried in a bag with him. Um, and it was continuously being delivered. Um, so he like slept with this bag of chemo. <laughs> it was really, really strange. Uh, but but I can uh, tell, I can tell that there's been enough distance of time that someone's laughing about it now. We're making yeah, jokes I mean, about walking it, around and sleeping with your bag of chemo, I guess. That's where we are. Like <laughs> That's where we got a to. different life, honestly. I mean, looking back on that time, it's like, how did we ever do it? And how, you know, it, it was just so obviously different and uh, life is so much better than it was for that period of time when time kind of stopped, but we had to keep going. Like we had to 
I had to keep running the company. I had to keep raising my daughter. He had to fight through cancer, but it's so, nothing So like it seems that the last, let's say, something like five years have been much, much better vis-a-vis -vis this terrible disease that he faced. Yeah. And even like, you know, COVID was such a horrible thing and everyone became depressed about it and, you know. But just not that sick. bad compared but to lymphoma. We were like, oh, great. Now the whole world has to experience this along with us. <laughs> I see. <laughs> and I see. Uh, no one's dying. Um, but this time okay. that we're like our lives are stopped and it feels like the world is ending, everyone else is feeling that way too. It's kind of nice. There's some camaraderie. You, you mentioned that, you know, sort of this – this is a terrible illness. I've heard this before, uh, put many other hardships into perspective. What about hopes and dreams? Did you, did there come a time jumping right into the deep of the pool here? Yeah. Did there come a time when the illness that he was facing figured into your conversation about pregnancy and kids and accelerating or decelerating or family planning or anything like that, that you're willing to share with our listeners who are very sensitive people, but they're very, one of the reasons we're trying to do this podcast is to, is to find those, those very special intimate moments. Some people don't want to share in, in life's journey that are relatable and acute for people who think about them in their own lives. Yeah. And I, I am really happy to share this because I am so grateful for someone who, who told me. So when Eric was diagnosed with cancer, we had just had a brand new baby. So having another baby was really not on my radar. I was overwhelmed <laughs> with the baby I had. Right. Um, right. And uh, I also, he had a really aggressive kind of cancer. Oh. He'd been lingering for a long time. And so I was really intent on like starting his treatment immediately. I didn't want to worry about anything else. I didn't want there to be any delays. Um, and one of the things I did ask his oncologist who was an amazing oncologist uh was like you know do we have to worry about being able to have kids in the future and she said probably not like it'll probably be fine uh sperm you know you'll you'll make more sperm it'll be fine uh when this treatment is over and it was actually a uh the spouse of a friend i knew from growing up um who was also going through cancer i had reconnected with him and then his spouse. And she told me that I should just bank his sperm. I should save his sperm. Um, and really gave me all the information, like where to go at UCSF to preserve the sperm. And I was like, oh, it looks like it's really hard to get an appointment. She gave me like the phone number to call. She was like, just say he's a cancer patient. They'll get him in the next day. Um, and so she made it really easy for me. I called up. I said, you know, my husband's a cancer patient. Uh, they did get us in the next day. Like there's no wait lists at any of these fertility clinics if you have cancer. Um, and uh, we did save his sperm, which was incredibly lucky because after afterwards, when uh, the dust all settled and uh, we did want to have another child, uh, we discovered that he didn't have any um, sperm uh, in in his semen. So they actually did a, a sample mm. of the semen and there was zero sperm, um, mm. not even like a little bit that they could work with, like zero. Um, and they, the oncologist, when we went back to her and we were like, Hey, did you know this happened? She actually said like, actually, I, I never really had a patient that was uh, of childbearing age because most of her patients are much older. 
Um, so she was like, I never really asked or followed up on this. So it was, it was kind of amazing that um, they don't know a lot of the oncologists are not. It is interesting. It is interesting. You're bringing up a, a broader point. The, the amount of advocacy that is required to navigate the American healthcare system, even at the very top levels, um, which is widely acknowledged by the best doctors. I mean, you have to speak up, you have to ask, you have to keep asking, you have to keep asking, you have to keep getting detail, which obviously you did doggedly, perhaps your husband did as well, but you sounded like you were, sounds from your story that you were in charge of it, at least yeah, this element. I mean, he was really sick. <laughs> like when- Right, when sick, you couldn't do it, okay. We had to preserve the sperm. Like, I mean, at that point, he had just gotten his tonsils out. He had actually had to have a follow-up surgery because he had bled out from that, like, and then he was really weak from being mm -hmm. super sick from the cancer for six months. And like, this was the last thing he wanted to be doing either. Oh, um, but someone made it really easy for us. And I'm always so grateful. And I, I just want to spread the word that if you are going through cancer treatment, like just see about uh, any kind of fertility preservation, because sometimes, especially for men, it's so easy. For women, it's a little more complicated um, because you have to time it right. But um, okay, so there was the sperm preservation. Did 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 this spur you? I'm asking. That's a very important question. We went to a place I did not anticipate, but it was extremely important. I think I was asking. Well, I was asking whether your planning, meaning we want to have more kids quickly, for fear, God forbid, that he should die, or for fear that God forbid he gets more sick. Did that kind of, thank God it worked out very well for you, but did that conversation in those dark times come up? And, and if so, are you willing to share any elements of it? Uh, because it is, it is so hard to imagine being in those shoes, but for someone who was in those shoes, perhaps you can shed light on that kind of moment. Yeah, I definitely didn't want to have more kids when I thought he could die because okay. I okay. already had one and I was like, this is, you know, going to be a lot for me to handle on my Got own. But once he got better and we did, you know, give it a year of him being better and recovering, you know, I thought, okay, now I think he's, he's going to stick around. <laughs> he's cured. And uh, I wanted my daughter to have a sibling, uh, but I, I would not have had another child if I thought his, uh, you know, if he had a chance of dying. Okay. I, I didn't want, Thank you uh, for answering. More kids on my own. I think, you know, like it it also uh it we did end up having a third child uh and i think you know i continued to see that he was rega regaining his health and able to be you know the dad that i needed him to be um <laughs> a really active hands-on dad because you know it's it's all consuming to raise children mm. and it's, mm. it's definitely not something i was up for doing by myself. Um, obviously, I would have done it if I had to, but I think mm -hmm. you know, there's no way I could have had more than one without without him as a partner. Um, he does, you know, way more than fifty percent of the work in raising our kids. Did Did there come a time as you were in this, either the the the, the worst moments or the moments when you're starting to come out of it? When, of course even those moments, given the histories of cancer, it's still hard to trust it for a while, right? It's kind of hard to, it's hard to, it's hard to say, okay, this is really done done. Now with, with, with many years under your belt, you can feel much, much more confident, but there must've been a time earlier when it was like, okay, are we really out of this or something like this? Um, and where yeah. am I wrong? It sounds like you want to say something. Go ahead, please. Yeah. I mean, like I remember one of the doctors we went to, um, 
in this, like we had to get a diagnosis said, you know, some people are cured and then eight years later, it comes back. <laughs> I've even seen someone 10 years later, it comes back yeah, and that is, say that, isn't it? like been burned in my mind. Um, like, because it, it hasn't been eight years. And, right, right. Uh, like now knowing, you know, I can never, I can never really rest easy, but it's true. I mean, anything can happen at any time. It could happen to my husband. It could happen to me. It could happen to one of my kids. And I think I've just come to terms with that. You know, we can't really take anything for granted. We can do our best to try to stay healthy and we can be grateful for the health that we have. Um, but we can't, live our life waiting for something terrible to happen. Um, and it, it could happen. To okay. Anybody. So let's talk, that, that's kind of what I was trying to pull on. And I was, let me sort of build on that for a second. So did there come a time when you created or you found yourself creating, you noticed you had created either actively created them or noticed you had created sort of in hindsight, any rules of thumb for yourself about how to manage all this complexity in your life, including ups and downs, uh, tragedy and triumph. And these, these, these could be, for example, just as simple as, you know what, I'm going to wake up at exactly this hour, or I'm going to talk about everything very openly as you at least seem to do online, or I'm going to keep the burn low for, for Winnie, my marketplace company to keep the stress down or, or I will never ever compromise again. I don't know. Some kind of like, you know, some kind of, uh, Scarlett O'Hara declaration, you know, you know, um, is, did, did any, did any, um, did any kind of thing like that ever occur to you or, or, or not? I think, you know, when times get stressful, it helps to focus on the challenge that is right in front of you, like what you have Mm. to do every day to move forward. So if it's a really acute challenge, like husband has cancer or, you know, the SVB banking crisis when we had no access to our funds, I had to just focus on like each day or each hour, what am I doing next to move the ball forward and get out of this mess? Um, I think when the challenge is less acute, you can plan a little bit more like, you know, my child has some challenge I need to work through, you know, how do I get them help? And how do I think about what our future looks like now that we've had to face this? Um, but I think looking too far ahead for me, I just like to kind of loosely plan the future. I don't know where things will be in five years or 10 years. I don't want to have uh, really strict guidelines around where I need to be or what things need to look like, because I know that things can really change um, and just kind of have some flexibility with what the future may look like. So let's talk about that for a second. So the, you noted that when things get tough, one foot in front of the other. What do I have to do this hour, this minute, this second was something you understood was helpful, constructive, and also sobering. It was focusing. Right. Um, Is that something you learned during this crisis or did you always know that? I, I think I, it helped a lot to experience this crisis because it really put into focus how you get through something that feels impossible. Mm. Uh, I I had to put everything aside when Eric was diagnosed with cancer. I couldn't even take care of my daughter. Like I literally Mm. handed her off to my mom and I was like, she's your responsibility now. Um, And, you know, when things settled down, I was able to take back some parenting responsibilities. But 
I, I really had to be singularly focused on getting him his diagnosis and treatment plan. Um, and every day counted in that case. So I, I just couldn't mm. be distracted with anything else. And I think few things are that acute. Uh, and also, as I've gotten, you know, more kids and more responsibilities, it's hard to put everything on hold in life and focus on one thing. But I, I have found that when there is a crisis, whether it's something at work or something with one of my kids, it does help to say, okay, I'm going to just focus on this. I'm going to put other responsibilities aside. I'm going to let them drop. I'm going to hand them off and put some. It is clarifying, right? It is clarifying. I mean, people experience crises all the time in in business or in their personal lives of various dimensions and sizes. You and your husband went through some very severe ones. But it is clarifying, almost like that the crisis is somehow useful because it gives you somehow permission to put away or put down, let me say, the second and third priorities, right? And and I know that when I do that, I can, you know, it gave me a lot of confidence because I was like, I can get through anything if I just stop and focus on it and put other responsibilities aside. And, you know, in that case, I got lucky too that his treatment worked and everything ended well, but it gave me a lot of confidence that like, okay, now I can do this with anything else. Um, nothing is too hard for me to figure out a way through. Okay. Well, we have now come to ding, 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 ding. That is not my voice. That is a real bell. This is now the speed round, which is a feature of the Finally podcast, which allows us also to change the tone and subject elegantly. Sarah Mouskopf. I just have to say for the record that your name does mean mouse head. And I want everyone to know that. Sarah Mouskopf, what is your favorite Philadelphia sports team? The Eagles. What is your favorite player of any sport of all time? Who is your favorite player of any sport of all time? Oh, God. That's really hard. Um, I mean, right. I I think I have to say Jalen Hurts. He's just top of mind for me right now. And for those of us who do not know Jalen Hurts? You got to know him. He's the, the quarterback for the Eagles, and he is on fire right now. On fire right now. What is the favorite food you do not make, Sarah Mouskopf? Oh, I love any Asian food, but I think Indian food is my favorite. A particular dish? Uh, like any kind of curry. I mean, I'm going to sound really basic for saying chicken tikka masala because I know that's not... That is an incorrect uh, answer. You real Indian food, but um, <laughs> I did, we did go it's to like Beg and Berta or Nihari or something. I've not been to India. Um, we did go to London, like basically just to do an Indian food tour. <laughs> and uh, it was amazing there. Too. Okay. Pivoting. What was your favorite Indian restaurant in London? Oh, I'm, I'm going to forget the name. It, oh, crud. I got to look it up. Um, it Describe was, it. It was like a fancy place. Jim Khanna. Um, no, uh, and it's pretty famous. Virar Swami. No. Um, well, honestly, you're just getting this wrong then. <laughs> These are not. <laughs> the, the places to go. I have to, I know. I'm going okay. to. Chutney Mary. Chutney Mary. So oh, okay. Good. Also, that is incorrect. That is not your favorite Indian restaurant in London. Oh, my God. Favorite I would Jewish do that just to eat there. <laughs> favorite Jewish food, Sarah Moskov. Uh, I guess locks and bagels. Does that count? <laughs> totally does. Totally counts. Um, Novi or locks? Uh, I guess, I guess no, you call it Novi. I call it Nova, but yeah. Nova East. Yeah. No, Novi, no, but Novi to those of us who are like from New York. 
Okay. All right. Something that really aggravates you that you wish did not, or that might be surprising to a stranger. Uh, anyone doing my laundry, folding my laundry, or putting my laundry away. You're proprietary I've, about your laundry. I've had to do my own laundry since I was eight years old. <laughs> I'm really. Uh, it so it's yours. Awesome. You're proprietary about it. Yes. And now I get is to it, do everyone's as a result of that. <laughs> is it meditative for you? Is it like it's like you get to do, like, put it away, make sure it's exactly no, the way, done the way it's supposed to be done? I definitely have some OCD, and I think I've managed a lot of it, but that's the one that's really. OCD does come up a lot among successful people. And in fact, either offline or online in these interviews, it comes up a lot. Um, so not surprising. Where would you live if you were not living in San Francisco and you're not allowed to say the Philadelphia area? Yeah, well, it would have been, I, we almost moved to Philadelphia uh, over the pandemic. So that that is where, uh, but oh, gosh, I don't know. I mean, it's really hard to think of anywhere else that I'd want to live besides the San Francisco Bay area just feels really like home and like the perfect place to raise a family. I know a lot of people hate on it, but you know, I, I feel like I could move anywhere, but I've chosen to stay here and it, it's hard to imagine anywhere else as good as this place. Well, let's play long or short, long or short, Joe Biden. Oh, I'm unfortunately short on Kamala Harris. Short. San Francisco. I'm long on San Francisco. We'll talk about that in a second. California. I'm long on California as well. Is Twitter or X better or worse now that Elon Musk owns it than it was before Elon Musk bought it? Oh, it's far worse, far worse. Best ever CEO of Twitter or X? Um, well, I really only was... Uh, worked there under Dick Costolo. Um, Ev was the CEO for like a month before Dick became the CEO. Dick was amazing. I, I love Dick and I love Ev. Um, I didn't get to experience the Jack as CEO era, but I did get to work a bunch with Jack and really enjoyed working with him too. So too hard to pick. They're all great. I love Very all my I love all my children. I love I, all my I love children. all my fathers, but uh they're what they're book are you reading people. right now, Sarah Moskov? Um, I am reading Diary of a Wimpy Kid with my daughters. Got it. And it's okay. really good. It's really entertaining. We are going, we are leaving this sidebar, coruscating as we were and as it was, and going back to the politics of today. Um, you continue to live and work in San Francisco and you said that some people hate on the Bay Area, but I have seen you hating on the Bay Area and San Francisco and the crime scene on social media, maybe in a fit of peak. Let's talk about San Francisco. You just stood up for the Bay Area. You did not say San Francisco. I believe you still live and work in the city. I may be wrong. No, no I'm in the uh, burbs. Um, oh, you're in the burbs as of when? So, uh, four years ago now. Okay, so, so, so tell us about your decision to leave. Was it driven by kids, driven by the by the changes yeah, I mean, of conditions on the ground in San Francisco. What's your feeling about San Francisco these days? So we moved to the town we moved to because of the schools. And I think that's a, a big reason a lot of people move outside of San Francisco. It's also, we were in a tiny apartment in the city and it, it was too hard to have two kids there, let alone three kids. There's just no way we would have fit. Um, so we, we moved out because of kids. I mean, it's just really hard to raise 
older children there, it's fine before they hit school age, but the school system- Why is it hard? Be specific, be forthcoming, do not be vanilla, be spicy and detailed. Yeah, so the problem with the San Francisco school district is you don't go to a local school. You, it's a whole lottery system and you could end up going to a school that's really, really far, you know, takes, you know, 45 minutes to get to across the neighborhood. And then all the kids could end up going to different schools. They're also not all equally good. Some are actually quite bad. Um, so I think that uncertainty and the fact that you could be at a really, you know, far away school, um, and then the the private schools there are incredibly competitive to get into because there's everyone you know that ends up staying in San Francisco goes to private school. I think that is what drove us out. It wasn't about crime. A lot of the crime has ramped up, I think in the um, last four years, yeah, especially the the crime in terms of like breaking into houses and that sort of thing. Uh, but I do remember when we lived there, like we needed to get rid of an old bike um, and you know, you can't just get rid of trash. Like when it's too big to fit in a trash can, you need to like hire a junk pickup or something like that. But we were like, let's just leave it in our garage um, unlocked. And the next day it was gone. Like someone had stolen the bike. Um, so that Petty was like- crime has its usefulness. Yeah. So we were like, that was how we got rid of junk is we just left it in our garage. So that was, uh, I mean, maybe a little like not the best place to raise children now in retrospect because- my entire house just has bicycles in our driveway constantly and no one steals them here. Without re- without revealing any information you don't want to reveal about your locale, roughly how far by car, let's say, do you live from San Francisco itself now? It's like 25 minutes without traffic. Okay. Uh, so, so now, follow-up question. We never oh, go into the city. Right. That's the question. How often do you actually get to San Francisco? Living 25 irony. minutes away. Um, you know, it's... Like sometimes we'll, my husband and I will do a date night there. We've taken the kids to <clears throat> like Warriors game and San Francisco Giants, but it's it's few and far between. Hmm. So what do you think, and I don't need to press the case on San Francisco too much because you've in fact voted with your feet and you've explained you don't go there very much. But I do in my in my sense of you and in my sense of your sense of yourself, at least publicly, because you still tweet as if, you still talk publicly as if you're part of San Francisco. You take ownership of the city and some of your yeah. social media uh, <clears throat> meanderings. I want to ask right. you a little bit more about San Francisco, then we can drop it if you'd like. What what ails it? And or what ails it and what's the prognosis and what's the solution to the ailment? So my my good friend, um, I actually worked with him at Twitter, um, Sachin Agarwal. He has an organization, Grow SF, uh, which I'll give a shout out to. He's trying to fix San Francisco and he's brought me up to speed on like what ails the city. And I mean, it's really the people in power that ail the city. Um, there's not not Mayor Breed, um, but really like a lot of the far left, uh, very progressive folks that um, are in these local ele- elections that it's actually really easy to change the city by just changing who we elect um, to represent us. Um, and so that was what motivated him to start Grow SF was like, it's actually not that hard to make the city better. We just have to fix who we elect. And and they put out this amazing voter guide, which I use because it also uh, instructs you for all of California 
Um, and it's really about finding these candidates who don't hold these like really crazy viewpoints that we, you know, has, has this been uh, effective in San Francisco? Have, have a, has a new slate of less far left candidates been elected or not yet? Yeah. So they, they've made some progress like with that, um, I'm blanking on his name, the, the guy who was like really that they recalled that was, um, had very easy on crime. Um, mm. and they replaced oh, the, him. Oh, the public defender. The public defender. Um, yeah. Or, yeah, I forget what the name of the position is. So they, they've made, they've started making Ch- Chase some Boudin. Chase Aboudin. Yes, that, that guy. Um, I mean, he was just like off the wall, crazy in my opinion. Uh, and they've replaced him with someone who's more normal. Um, but it's like, there's a whole host of elections like that, that have to turn over before we can start seeing progress, I think in the city. Okay. So let's, let's broaden because you, you've raised the topic of the far left and I, and I would like to talk about it with you. Um, in, in my, in my, we've never discussed this. Um, I've never asked you about it. You've never offered, we've never discussed it in private, in public. My conception of you is that you're someone who is um, probably like me, grew up on the left and um, has brought left of center principles to her life across many parts of her life. Um, and you can certainly edit, correct, amend, yeah, I mean, I, redirect. I grew up kind of with no politics at all. Like I think my dad's was a registered Republican. I just asked him what he's like. I'm, I'm a I think he's not registered with any political party now, but um, we didn't really, uh, it it was just more about, you know, what are the principles we agree with and what candidates do we like for what principles? And I I found myself agreeing with a lot of the, you know, democratic principles, like, you know, I believe in abortion and and things of that nature. Um, And lately though, I, I think I've found myself really straying from, the principles of that party. And, and I, you know, I think like a lot of Jews, I've been really disappointed uh, by the support for uh, Jews in this country um, and, you know, how much anti-Semitism there, there has been recently and how little. So I'm um, building up to, I'm building yeah. up to a question for exactly this yes. reason. You're ahead of me, but, but I want to build up to a provocative question. Yes. Which I don't think is terribly provocative, but maybe you will. Do you believe that there is a connection between Hamas and DEI? Uh, uh, maybe. Um, I mean, I think what's been happening is uh, there. there's been now so much um, kind of like, look, I, I, I have been the most like, DEI person you can find. That's my conception of you. That's why I'm asking you the question. That's my conception of you. Yeah. We couldn't find white men to hire at Winnie that met the bar. Like that, that is how um, much I I truly believe in diversity and inclusion. Like I I believe it makes better companies, but I think what's happened is that that uh, has been co-opted by Mm. uh, the far left to become Mm. like, white is bad and Mm. Jews are bad. Mm. Uh, And it's gotten to a point where now like anti-Semitism has become like mainstream. Like it's okay to hate Jews. 
in the name of like, you know, diversity and inclusion for those who are, uh, in, it's not just okay in these circles. In fact, it is a virtue to hate Jews in these circles. Right. Yeah. I think it's become popular and like, you know, anytime I tweet like, oh, I'm so grateful some hostages have been free or like what what's happening with like mm. the baby who was taken hostage. Mm-hmm. Um, I get like destroyed in the replies of people being like, you're a terrible person for mm. caring about uh, like innocent children who have been taken hostage. Um, like it's become uh, like they, they've co-opted diversity and inclusion to mean like, let's hate Jews. And how that transformation has happened is like, whoa, like, I don't even know how that has happened. But it's like, now I I think they've, they've like turned DEI into like a a dirty word almost because they've, they've. So you think this is, you think this is a a co-optation by the far left of the the DEI movement, which was something else before. That is your conception of what has happened. I think it it started out with the right uh, principles and now mm. has gone somewhere that I couldn't have even imagined. Like, mm-hmm. you know, there's like UN Women who w- was supposed to be this organization that spoke out for women's rights. And there's been, you know, they have- Not if they're Jews. Women. In the past, yeah, that I've supported and I've actually not if there's Israelis, and now like all these women in Israel were raped and taken hostage by Hamas and murdered, and their rapes were filmed and sent to their relatives, and UN women didn't say a word about that, and it's just like kind of crazy to me that these organizations that I thought were advocating for me and representing me and representing values that I believed in. Um, are not. <laughs> and, and it's all just, you know, very confusing and, and causing me to kind of step back and say like, okay, it's not, it, it's the principles I believe. And I do believe in, you know, obviously advocating for women, but I believe in, in that for all women, including Jewish women. Um, and I can't support an organization that doesn't condemn the rape of Jewish women just because they're Jewish or Israeli. So I see, or I believe I see online that somehow, perhaps since October 7th, you have taken to studying Hebrew or maybe redoubled your efforts in Hebrew. And yeah. it seems to me that's a, that's a decision. And so I don't want to dwell on that, although we can, if you wish. Are you finding yourself also studying or devoting any of your time to studying the intellectual history or ideological history of movements such as decolonizing, so-called decolonizing movements or anti-establishment movements or anti-racist movements or DEI movements, not the things that we see as manifest examples, such as I want to hire more people from diverse backgrounds, but the movements themselves. And are you spending any time studying whether there is a an intellectual filament between these movements and the movements that we see spilling blood and causing bloodshed, such as Hamas. I, I'm not, I, I have such limited time. Uh, I, I, think, I don't blame you. You are very busy. That, that was the entire premise of this interview. It's true. Yeah. So I wish I had time to 
like deeply understand, uh, you know, what's happening. I think I, I know enough to know that it, it's very scary right now to be Jewish. And I'm really scared for my kids growing up in this world where, you know, it, it feels like Jews are hated even more than when I grew up. Um, and it, it, it's feeling like a lot of the kind of stuff I learned about back in Hebrew school about how the Holocaust started. So I think the way I'm devoting the, the very limited time and energy I have is like, look, there's, I think, 15 million Jews in the world. Is that right? Like, it's about 15 or 16 million. That's about right. Yeah. Um, there's 8 billion people in the world. So there's, you know, barely any of us left. Um, and I think the ones of us who are left need to speak out, um, need to, you know, raise our kids Jewish, uh, need to, um, you know, learn Hebrew uh, or, you know, try to keep Hebrew alive. Mm. Um, and so I, I, I'm basically that that's, I think, where I can put my time and energy is Do you like, find yourself becoming. I don't know how religious you are or were, or do you find yourself becoming more, let me say, either religious or more ritualistic in your or ritually driven or ritually habitual in your weekly or daily life as well or no? Um, definitely since having kids. And then also since COVID, like my synagogue during COVID was really the only place that was open. <laughs> um, and like, mm. it, it was really a lifeline, I think, to my family during COVID, like my kids went to the preschool there. Uh, mm -hmm. They had mm -hmm. Shabbat outside. Uh, during COVID, we would go there like almost every Friday night. Um, mm -hmm. And we just found ourselves like getting more involved with the synagogue because it was really our community and, and all we had. Um, mm. And I think, you know, that that has continued on. Uh, mm. And I, you know, we, we are like, I feel like one of the few families here, especially in the San Francisco Bay Area, like we are only Jewish, like we're not half Jewish. We're not like, oh, there's this relative that's celebrates Christmas. Like it's all we have. <laughs> we are fully a hundred percent Jewish. So, mm. um, I, I don't have anything else to lean into. Um, this is who I am. This is my community. This is who my kids are. Uh, and I want them to, you know, really have that and, and learn where they come from and, and have Judaism because it, it, it has been such a lifeline to me throughout my life and through hard times. And I want it to be that for my children. So, so there was a time after kids, very typical. There was a time during COVID. I, I've heard that a little bit, but not as much. Uh, but this, this rise or the reappearance or the emergence of visible, acknowledged anti-Semitism, mainstream so-called anti-Semitism or um, celebrated in certain circles, anti-Semitism shameless anti-Semitism. This is not, this prompted you to learn Hebrew maybe or redouble your efforts in Hebrew, but not become more religious. Am I hearing you well? Um, I don't know that I'm becoming more religious, like we're not keeping kosher or things of that nature, but we are uh, doing more with the synagogue. Like the other day we volunteered at a food bank with the kids and uh, that was with our synagogue. And it was maybe something I wouldn't have like taken the time to go to or wanted to you know, it's just another activity, but it was just really important to me that my kids, you know, do that and be around other 
Jews and see that giving back is like a huge part of life and Jewish life. One more thing on this topic. One more question on this topic. Um, you live in the San Francisco Bay Area. You socialize, it sounds, at least partly with Jewish families and so forth. But you work with and socialize with and spend time with mixed Jewish families, non-Jewish families in a politically very liberal or progressive or left or hard left part of America. Yeah. Do you find it possible to talk about Israel and these topics that now are on everyone's lips with your friends, colleagues, neighbors, or do you avoid yourself avoiding it? Do you find it possible to talk about it, easy to talk about it? Do you find, find yourself supported or sh uh, shunned? Uh, do you, do you uh, find yourself unwilling to raise the topic for fear of discovering who they might be? What is your current mood there uh, as you sit? Yeah, it's been um, interesting. There, there's certainly been people I've had to like unfollow on social media. Mm. I have found like people I'm close to have been incredibly supportive, like more supportive than I thought they might be. Um, you know, I talked to some like Asian friends and they were like, you know, we we feel you and we're here for you through this like period of like increased anti-Semitism um, and a lot of you know, Asian people have experienced a lot of hate and violence against them, especially in the San Francisco Bay Area. And so, you know, it was actually a point of like that I could relate to people that I didn't think were going to understand where I was coming from. <clears throat> so I have been really pleasantly surprised. Uh, you know, it's a terrible thing. Like there shouldn't be violence against Asian people. There shouldn't be anti-Semitism. But um, it has bonded me to, to some other marginalized groups that have experienced this. And I think we all uh, want the same thing, which is that everyone is, you know, able to, to have their culture and religion and, and be treated with respect and kindness and not be hated for who they are. When was the last time you went to Israel? And do you want to go back or go there for the first time sooner because of your feelings these days? I've never been to Israel and I, I've actually said for a while, like, oh, we should, we should do this. Uh, obviously now, like that's not happening. I, I just can't, you know, I have three kids. It's not safe. Um, I, the, one of the big reasons I have never been is like all growing up, I heard like, oh, it's not, not very safe, not very safe. Um, and now it's, you know, a whole new level of not safe. So we're not going anytime hmm. soon. I'm sorry to hear you say that. I want to thank you very much. Is there anything else, Sarah Moskov, that you would like to say that I did not, the floor is yours, I did not prompt or invite you to say on any topic whatsoever? Go, go is there birds. anything you might like to say? Hmm? Go birds. That's uh, what we say. For this me. is a confirmation and an expression of your unfailing interest religion. in the Philadelphia <laughs> Eagles. Were you raised at the stadium Basically, yeah. It's, uh, I, I, I did marry a Jewish man, but he was not an Eagles fan, and I did make him convert to Philadelphia sports. I see. Uh, I see. The stipulation of our marriage. Well, I want to say thank you very much. I know you have a hard stop today, and we want to respect that. This has been an episode of Finally. Thank you for listening. <laughs>